John chapter 5, verse 1 to 18. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, do you want to be healed? The sick man answered him, sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. And while I am going, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, get up, take up your bed and walk. And at once the man was healed and he took up his bed and walked. Now that day was a Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, it is the Sabbath and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, the man who healed me, that man said to me, take up your bed and walk. They asked him, who is the man who said to you, take up your bed and walk? Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn as there was a crowd in the place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, see, you are well, sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, my father is working until now, and I am working. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. This is the word of God. There's an argument that C.S. Lewis popularized, uh, which is that Jesus was likely either a liar, a lunatic, or a lord. I'm sure some of you are familiar with that. The idea being that Jesus presents himself not just as another teacher, not just as a as a guy who can contribute to the world, but he presents himself as the very son of God, one with the father existing before all things and coming into the world to bring this deep healing, this profound change to change the world. And so as the argument goes, if that's really what he's claiming, then as we try to figure out who he is, if he's lying, in other words, if he's not saying the truth about those things, then there's something inherently unethical about him in which case you should reject his teaching. You shouldn't say, well, he claimed to be the divine son of God, but he had some good principles. You should distance yourself from somebody who would make a claim like that if it wasn't true. Uh, but then maybe he was well-meaning, maybe he was delusional, he really thought that, in which case you don't need to distance yourself from him, but certainly don't devote yourself to him. Where will he bring you? <laughs> we don't know. But the point Lewis was making is to say, but if he actually claimed those things and it was true, then you can't necessarily simply 
decide what to do with him or adopt what you like from his teaching. But actually, if those things are true, then the implications are profound that we should worship him, we should devote ourselves to him, we should serve him. Now, in John's gospel, that's what our sermon series has been, there are a number of occasions where the direct claims are made that Jesus was with God in the beginning, was God, um, even uh, the, the signs that Jesus are doing. Today, we're looking at one of them. His healing implied not simply that he had figured out how medicine works, but that the power of God was uniquely at work in him to do it, what couldn't otherwise be done. And the impression of these signs is meant to point you to a reality of who he is and what God wants us to see and what is being offered. But the response in today's passage is not that this must be the Lord, (laughs) where they're excited and they're marveling, but... I don't know what they were thinking, but it could have been this person's a liar or this person is delusional or something that left the the people with the responsibility to be in charge, not encouraging devotion to him, but beginning their opposition to him. So today we're stepping into the section in John uh, where we're now we're finding more and more conflict and opposition. And there are these juxtapositions in John. I don't know that John necessarily designed it that way, but in reading along, you can see, see this. So for instance, uh, we looked at John 3, where Jesus interacts with Nicodemus, a Pharisee, uh, where he says, no matter how much you have it together, you cannot even see the kingdom of God unless there's a deep spiritual work. But the next story is the Samaritan woman in John 4, a woman whose life was kind of messy, but Jesus says, if you ask me, I will give you living water, and she believes. So there's, there's the resistance, and then there's belief. Last week, we looked at a story where an official son was healed. He was dying, and Jesus heals him. And the response, he believes the word of Jesus as Jesus says, go, your son is healed. But when his son is actually healed and he sees how God was working, it says he and his household believed. And now here's a, another healing where Jesus heals a man unable for 38 years, unable to walk, somebody paralyzed, but the response is not faith and marvel, but the response is betrayal and persecution. And it ends in verse 18. This is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Now, they seem to have misunderstood what it meant to claim to be equal with God, but they didn't miss that that's what Jesus was claiming. And the response to this healing is not belief. It's not marvel. It's not joy. It's anger and it's frustration. And so we could learn a lot um, from looking at what went wrong in this passage as we look at our own lives And as John presents Jesus to us saying, here is the possibility for life. God will show you things. And for many of us, it will stir in us, not joy and marvel, but but frustration, fear, anger, you know, these various things. Where is that coming from? It's good to have some insight into that to make sure we're making wise choices. So where do we find God in this world? Is it possible to find God in this world? Jesus is saying, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. But that's hard for us. And, and what is it about our search for either something meaningful, something substantial, something that will bring us joy, that would leave us frustrated when God comes and does something kind and gracious, when God shows himself to us, that instead of seeing it marveling and giving thanks, we get so angry that we want to kill the one that's before us? How does that go wrong? Um, 
we'll reflect on, on that a little bit today. I, I, I want to ask three questions. The first is for each of us to ask, what am I looking for in the world? What am I looking for? Uh, because one of the, the ways that we make this mistake is um, sometimes we're looking for things that are good things, but we make them ultimate things, and it actually blinds us to seeing um, God. So the story we're looking at is helpful because it shows the complexity of our world. <laughs> it shows just how troubled things are. Jesus does something to heal someone. He does something impossible, but the whole situation around it needs an even greater healing. Um, so there, uh, the Roman Empire is politically in charge. So from the perspective of Jewish people at this time period, that was a bad situation. Then you have the religious leaders who are trying their best uh, to lead, but, but there are certain things they couldn't do. <laughs> so here you have a community of people who were unable to be helped. So this was a religious uh, society where they were to have compassion, they were to show kindness. No doubt, they would have had the intentions on helping anyone in need, but the need was so great they were overwhelmed that instead of being able to respond in the thorough way, they might say we were under-resourced. <laughs> so we just couldn't help everyone. So here's a whole community of people who are marginalized, who um, are not able to gather in the temple, and instead they're in Bethesda, Bethsaida, however you say it, at this colonnade, this area where there's a pool. And so in verses three to five, your homework could be to meditate on verse four this week, but uh, get back to me with how that goes later. Uh, but verses three to five, it says, uh, in, in these, in this colonnade where the pool was, there lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. So the story will focus on that particular person. But the description is, there's a multitude. There is a high number of people for whom um, they can't thrive in this world. And if we are to be charitable, let's assume that they were in communities that cared about these things, but just what could, what could you do? <laughs> what could you do for a paralyzed person? Well, you could bring them there, you could feed them. Um, but another indication of, of the complexity of our world, verse seven, Jesus comes to him to help him and he says, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. And while I'm going, another steps down before me. And so there it is. Here's a community of people who are sort of outside the mainstream. What they have in common is desperation. But even there, rather than saying, hey, this, the waters stir up every now and then, and we believe that, uh, that it has healing powers, let's come up with a plan. So who goes first, who goes second, and by the end of the year, maybe all of us will be healed. And instead, they do what we all do, is to say, the second that stirs up now is my chance, and we have a story focused on one guy who... He wasn't able to get in. And so he kept hoping that he might get to these healing waters and kept finding others got there first. This is a picture of the way our world doesn't work. And yet, um, John is already giving us a number of stories about water. So John, the gospel writer, uh, tells us a lot about John the Baptist who comes baptizing, a sign of purification. God will prepare people so when he comes, they could uh, be ready for his presence. And then John speaks to the Samaritan woman at this well. Uh, they're dying of thirst in the middle of the day. And he says, but if you ask me, I would give you living water. She doesn't seem to understand what that is. Well, here is a group of people who are hoping in what appears to be a living water. 
it must have been, we, we would just explain it, some natural spring that, a, you know, however frequently it was, it would bubble up. Um, but if you're superstitious because you're desperate, and if the report was that when it bubbles up, some people have reported that they received healing, then you think this is living water. And what happens is when you really believe that that will solve your deepest problem, then you devote yourself daily to showing up. Um, and then Jesus comes, and, and it's interesting the way the interaction between Jesus and this man goes wrong. So Jesus asks him a question, do you want to be healed? Because Jesus has the power that this water doesn't. Jesus has already told the Samaritan woman, if you knew who can give you living water, this may be moving water, it may be active water, this is not life-giving water. So Jesus didn't make that speech to him, but just asked him, do you want to be healed? But his, his, his answer betrays things. And of course, it's completely understandable. He doesn't know anything about Jesus. So Jesus comes, do you want to be healed? And his answer is, here's how you can help me. You can put me into the water. So the, the person still is so desperate that he hopes the water will heal him, that Jesus, who's the only one who actually can, will be useful to him getting him into the water. And then what he'll find out is that the water cannot heal him, but Jesus can. But that's a lesson he does not easily get. And so what's interesting is after he's healed, um, Jesus sort of slips away. So when the religious leaders, the authorities come and they see him carrying his mat. So here was a guy that just laid down on it because it was more comfortable than being on the dirt. Jesus says, get up, take your mat and walk. And the guy gets up utterly amazed, takes up his mat, and then is stopped because it's the Sabbath and he's carrying his mat. Now, I'm quite sympathetic to this guy when they ask him, who was it who healed you? And he says, I have no idea. I think I myself would be so confused and utterly stunned by that whole interaction that I would find myself, I would imagine, um, uh, being marveling that I'm standing up, marveling that I'm healed, you know, uh, confused, excited, whatever it is, and not paying attention to Jesus. So Jesus slips away. They ask him, who was it? And he says, I don't know. That's understandable. Yes, the response should have been, wow, you healed me. Who are you? Um, you have cared for me like nobody else has. How can I serve and follow you? It's easy for me to have patience. I'm the kind of guy that would have been so confused that by the time I looked for Jesus, I wouldn't have been able to find him. But at some point, it would have crossed my mind, who was this? Who did this? And in verse 14, it says, afterward, Jesus found him in the temple. And so now's his chance. <laughs> who are you? Where were you? I've, you know, now, now I'm grasping this. Jesus' words to him are interesting. He finds him in the temple and said to him, see, you are well. Sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. And that's a, a hard thing to understand what Jesus was saying. And, and something like that, there will always be disagreements about it. Was Jesus saying the reason that you were suffering was because you sinned? And if you do one thing wrong again, God's going to put you right back to the place where you were. The fact that that makes the most sense to a lot of us probably is telling about what we believe. So that's interesting. Go to John 9. There's another healing because Jesus' disciples say, who sinned, this man or his parents? And Jesus says, you've misunderstood. God is going to display his glory. And it's a healing where this man responds by faith. It's actually an interesting contrast to John 5. 
So when Jesus says, sin no more, he's not saying, you've got one chance now, get it right, or God's going to send you back to where you were. You were healed. Now I came and found you. Um, will you follow me? Will you receive the greater, deeper healing? Or will you remain within a system that you uh, suffered under and yet seemed to have buy-in with? So the fact that he's at the temple in verse 14 is good. It's the right thing. Here he was. He, he was healed. I would assume that what that meant was God healed me. I'm going to go uh, to the temple and give thanks. And it would have been a marvel for him because he would have been excluded from the temple. And so now he has that, uh, that, that place. So it's entirely understandable, except that you, uh, what we're going to find out as we go on in this passage is he's under a system um, where the religious authorities are so strict that he winds up with a distorted view of himself. And I'm sure many of these others at the colonnades who saw themselves as were the community of the unworthy, the community of the forgotten. And our only hope is to, to stomp over each other so that the waters could heal us. Jesus is inviting him out of that whole thing. Um, and yet he runs to the temple almost as anybody in any society. When you see these are the successful, these are the powerful, uh, inadvertently, without knowing it, that, that defines what success and power looks like. And so the, the, the desire to be in with that community, the moment you have the opportunity to go in, that's where you go. This man goes to the temple in order to be in with these leaders such that, uh, in verses 15 and 16, it says, the man went away and he told the Jews who it was that healed him. And this is why the Jews were persecuting Jesus because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. Now, as a reminder, when we go through John, um, when John uses the language of the Jews, there's nobody in this story who's not Jewish, including John who wrote it. He's talking about the religious authorities. And so they come to him with a question, who was it who healed you? Why are you, who is it that told you to carry your mat? And he says, I don't know. But now when he finds out, he had the opportunity to say to Jesus, who are you? But instead, it's almost as if he's so excited that he could get in even more with the people that he wants to be in with, that he runs and he tells them who it was that healed him. Now, did he know that he was getting Jesus in trouble? We don't know any of these things. But, but to a certain degree, it's a picture of a guy who was in the outside, who had buy-in on, on uh, the, the ways of thinking and now feels like he's finally in and wants to collaborate with them. And without realizing it, against the very person who gave to him and who healed him. And, and, and when Jesus, I think, is, is warning him, he's saying, you've now seen something of the power of God. There's more that if you see it, you will be free, or you could return to this world and all of its corruption. And maybe now you're not the guy at the pool. Maybe now you're guy, the guy in the temple. But are you part of this whole uh, broken system, or will you join me in being part of the healing of the world? And that, again, again, is what we see that uh, all of us are prone to however success is being defined by whoever either has it or by whatever communities are drawn to it creates the dynamic of there are those that have it and those who don't and long for it and those who never will and therefore don't belong. And Jesus is, is presenting the possibility for a different world, but we're so stuck and stubborn that we don't 
um, we don't often follow. So, you, so one of the things, one of the problems, for instance, in poor communities, because the world is defined by saying, you know, what does success look like? It's Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos. And so, yeah, most of us will never be that, but if that's the ultimate trajectory, and then to be without money communicates you're, you're failing, you don't belong. And there's a number of dangers there. One is that you actually believe that when it's not true, but you believe it because the way the world characterizes what success looks like so shapes you that then you have no conclusion other than to say, we don't have belonging in the world and we have no value. It's a false conclusion. Jesus is trying to call people out of that. Just because you don't belong with them doesn't mean that you don't belong. But what's interesting in a poor community where, where often there's a disproportionate amount of um, income spent on lottery tickets. Now, why is that? Well, people are desperate. If, if somebody is unable to walk but, and believes that the waters will heal them because there seems to be something spiritual in it, you could understand that if somebody can't afford to eat, if somebody uh, can't keep paying rent so that they could stay in one place, they're not being unspiritual for wanting money. Jesus is not saying, don't worry about your tangible needs, um, but here's some emotional things that God could give you. If somebody can't eat, they need money to eat. So in a poor community, somebody feeling that they really are desperate to have sufficient means to sustain themselves is nothing to criticize them for. But there's something inherently foolish about putting your money into the lottery, because if you understand the little money you have, you're squandering, so it's a bad decision. But how often are there reports of lottery winners being told afterwards that their lives were no more satisfying, no more enjoyable, no better? Um, one of the, the issues is not simply that you're, you're spending 10% of your income on something that either could have an enormous payoff, but the odds are so minimal that you're guaranteeing that you're giving uh, your resources away. The, a deeper problem is, is to really believe that the ultimate um, salvation for me is to think that I could have more than everyone else. That itself is the kind of thing Jesus is wanting to enter into and saying, uh, everything here is wrong. <laughs> so uh, you are not wrong if you're hungry for wanting money, but don't look at the billionaires and think you will only be right if you have that. And so Jesus is offering uh, an opportunity that so many of us don't see because we so want to be in with however success is defined that when uh, the, the one who shows us kindness is with us, we, we don't receive any benefit from it because we don't want to be with people who are kind. We want to be with people who are successful. So, so we're drawn to the people who use us and the people who care for us. That's nice. Um, but why should I believe when they say I'm valuable? Because they don't have anything to show for it. When Elon Musk says that I'm valuable, then I know I've made it. Jesus is showing uh, that's the nature of the world. The fact that when Jesus comes and demonstrates the goodness and mercy of God, we're disinterested because we think Jesus could help us meet the things that will really heal us. We've misunderstood how Jesus can really profoundly heal us. And so what am I looking for in the world? Uh, some of you may be economically struggling, but a lot of you are not. And so in the very same way, there is something that you're looking for to say, if I have that, it will heal me. 
It will fix the thing that's wrong. It will finally be the thing that will make me feel like I belong. And Jesus is saying, well, who defined that? Because if it's not him in his grace and mercy, you're going to find you're going to use God, you're going to ignore God, and even if you are successful, you will not be truly healed. And so it's always worth thinking about what is it that I'm really devoting myself to with the hopes that if I attain that, I'll finally feel like I'm healed. Um, Jesus is warning us. Who's defining that for you? So one question is, what am I looking for in this world? Here's a second question. Who am I looking to be in this world? And they're connected because the people who are defining what you are looking for are also role modeling who you want to be. And so we're being shaped, our character is being shaped, the things that we pursue are being shaped by those whoever, uh, who have lived up to the standard of success that we think is defining. And so now turning from this individual that Jesus shows grace to, favor to, and warns, now we look at the religious authorities who don't simply um, distance themselves from Jesus, but actively start to pursue him uh, in persecution. Uh, they're in a different situation. These are not the people without the voice. These are the people with the voice. These are the people making the rules. And it's easy for us to, to think, oh, these are the, the bad guys. But it's always helpful to be sympathetic. How, how did they get there? <laughs> because then you're going to realize, um, yeah, we're more like them than we otherwise can see. And the opportunity in that is to, to then make the decisions where we become more like Jesus. So um, verse 11, very interesting. So the man is carrying his mat and it's the Sabbath. So they, they ask him, who is it that told you to carry your mat? In verse 11, his answer is the man who healed me that man said to me, take up your bed and walk. So the man who healed me said, take up your bed and walk. So verse 12, their question, who is the man who said to you, take up your bed and walk? It's easy when you're not there and you're the reader to know what question should have been asked. Question should have been, who healed you? The man said, the man who healed me told me to take up my bed. I think we should be asking, who is it that healed you? <laughs> but they ask him, who is it that told you to take up your bed? The fact that he was for 38 years struggling and was healed doesn't strike them. The fact that he's carrying his mat on the Sabbath strikes them. Um, easy from a distance to think what's wrong with these people, but, but how did they get there? Why was it in the, the days of, of the first century that Jesus winds up constantly having these Sabbath controversies there throughout the Gospels? Well, if you go back and you read the prophets who warn God's people again and again, you are not living in ways that are honoring God. You're not just, you're not upright, you're not devoted to him. You are like the surrounding nations, and unless you change and, and become like the people God has called you to be, you will be taken over by the surrounding nations. And that's indeed what happened in the story of God's people. They wound up being captured and conquered. But you read the prophetic literature, and one of the things that comes up in a couple of points is you're not keeping the Sabbath. You're trying to be like them. And, and so on a day that you um, 
you can rejoice, you can rest, you can delight, you can do all the things that would enjoy the fruit of what you have. Instead, you're trying to make more. You're trying to stay competitive with the surrounding nations. And after they were captured, you could see the lesson they learned. We didn't listen to God. And so what do we do? And I think if I was there, I would have been like, let's find out what we did wrong and let's get it right. So if the prophet said we didn't keep the Sabbath, let's make sure that nobody among us does anything that breaks the Sabbath. <laughs> but a couple hundred years later, and they've codified, you could read the Mishnah, there are these 39 different categories of what constitutes work on the Sabbath. Very understandable. The Sabbath honors God. We're not going to keep it. So let's make sure that there, we take all the guesswork out. Is carrying my mat work on the Sabbath? Well, for most people, it probably is. So let's none of us do it. It's understandable. These are people who sought to be faithful to God. But the interesting thing is, they wind up in an effort to be so specifically perfect, to make sure nothing that they do uh, would go wrong. They wind up um, with a whole system that feels equal to the commandments of God. God's commandment, keep the Sabbath, is to be taken very seriously. But here's a man carrying his mat, and it seems like they think this person is disobeying God. Because at that point, in their effort to, to be perfect, they found somebody who's not meeting that standard. A, a good effort, or a, let's assume the best of them, a genuine desire within them to be perfect in the sight of God. But now we've come across somebody who's not, and we need to get them in line. Um, verse 18, they were seeking all the more to kill Jesus. It's one thing that he told somebody to break the Sabbath. He was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Now, there's an irony there. Jesus did what only God could do, heal a person. And he's being transparent about it, and they're offended that he made himself equal with God. They're not aware that when they're saying, by carrying your mat, you are violating God's law, that inadvertently they were making themselves equal with God. They were saying our application of the Sabbath is the standard. If you're not keeping that, they didn't say, look, can we coach you on what would honor God? They said, you are breaking the rules of the authorities. And our desire to be God, um, most of us are aware of the instinct in us. That's usually more of the egotistical variety. We want applause. We want honor. We want people to be devoted to us. And so when you have those feelings of just wanting everyone to love you, everyone to be devoted, everyone to think you're the greatest, you could catch yourself and be like, wait a second, I want people to worship me. It gets a little bit more complicated when you want to be responsible, a good steward of your gifts and resources, when you want to be intentional about how you live, to not realize there's also a danger there of making yourself equal with God. Because in the same way that wanting people to appreciate you is not problematic, but wanting them to see you in the unique way that God is, is problematic. Being responsible, being particular, being disciplined, being devoted, those are all good things. There's something about the human heart and our pride that at some point will always overstep the line to, to be confused about um, what does my power and authority imply for others, that our desire to 
control others inadvertently puts us in the position of being God. Not simply that we have stewardship because of responsibility. We have a certain vantage point by which we can um, uh, you know, discharge our duties and our wisdom and our resources. It's not that the alternative is to do nothing, but there's something about human beings that it's hard to really grow as a person without growing beyond the point where we start to resent people who disagree with us, who don't do what we say. And I think a lot of us, just even in our normal interactions, the things that frustrate us with other people is they don't honor us by hearing, believing, obeying, and keeping our word. Didn't I tell you not to leave your socks in the bathroom floor? That's good, say that. Um, but be careful what punitive punishments you uh, inst uh, have follow-up for the person who violated your command and your right to live in a certain way. That's where it gets dangerous. How, how, do we, how do we navigate those places where we want to be intentional and we want to be clear? And we need to navigate the world without trying to be God. Because the problem is, if you are trying to be God, inevitably you will hate the true God. Um, and, and that's the danger where we're in trying to be like God in the right way, which is to be faithful, to be wise, to be a good steward, to be intentional. We sometimes cross the line so that, that the reality of God becomes troublesome to us because then we are not honored or we um, don't have ultimate authority or somebody has the right to correct us. We all wind up there and we don't want to be um, like these people who sought to kill Jesus because he claimed equality with God when they were unaware that their problem was that they assumed a certain equality with God. And so I think one of the, the, the terms that, that a popular term today to, to help try to work this through and apply this to your life is perfectionism. The danger with perfectionism is twofold. On the one hand, that perfect standard will show you when you're falling short, so you will sometimes feel so flawed that you will wrongly believe that you don't belong and that you are unable to see any good in yourself or others around you. The other problem is you are killing yourself to make sure that you don't make a mistake, um, that then you don't realize that you're also killing those around you. Um, only God can be God. And there's something important about um, being able to recognize that that restores things. And so uh, so here's the third question for us. The first was, what am I looking for in the world? The second, what am I looking, who am I looking to be in the world? Now the third is, how do I move forward in this world? I'm highlighting this world because that's what Jesus is doing. He's not coming and pulling people out of the world. He's coming and saying, I'm, I'm, I'm showing you a different reality. And if you follow me, uh, it can be more thoroughly transformative. There can be real healing that, that begins. But how do we move forward in that way? Um, the, the complexity of this world, what we should want, what we should seek after, what we should devote ourselves to, who's defining for us what we want to be. Um, Jesus comes in and he asks this man a question, verse 6, do you want to be healed? Of course the person did. And he was not superficial to want to be healed of his ailment. It's not like, uh, as the modern reader, it's not like we should look back and be like, he should have said, well, sure, I would like to be free of this paralysis, but what I really need is the forgiveness of my sins. 
It was understandable. Jesus came to him, seeing him in his current struggle and wanting to heal him. But he was offering him so much more that if Jesus can do that, then what else can this person do? What else can he show me? Even to the degree that anybody else watching should have been able to say, if he could do that, maybe we should follow him as well. Maybe uh, he could do something uh, for us. And so, so Jesus's word to him in verse 8. So last week in the healing miracle, the official son, he's, the official comes and says, come to my helm. My son is dying. And Jesus says, I have healed him. Go. The power of his word to heal. The man had to believe it. And we find that his word is powerful. Here again, Jesus in verse 8 says to this man, get up. Take up your bed and walk. Um, that phrase, get up. What an impossible thing to say somebody who for 38 years was unable to get up. And he says it, and his word is powerful. Next week, we're going to finish chapter 5. The rest of the chapter is Jesus' response, his teaching. He says something interesting. He says, one, one day, people in their tombs will hear my voice. And the last sign in John is that, at the tomb of Lazarus. When Jesus says, get up, you know, the power of that effectual call to make a healing reality, it's something we receive because of the one who is saying it, the one who had the power in the beginning to say, let there be light, and it was, and it was good, you can say to this man, get up and walk, and he can. And Jesus says, and I will one day say to you, get up, and there will be a, a rising beyond the grave where there will be a, a thorough healing. But on this side of reality, we have to trust him for that, which is that he promises a thorough, real healing, yes, for our bodies, yes, for our material shortcomings, um, but also for our perfectionism, also for our anger and our hostility, also for the fact that we are never able to get past believing that we don't belong. Jesus is able to begin that work by the power of his word. And so as this Sabbath controversy comes up, Jesus doesn't get into them it doesn't get into an argument about interpretation. Well, does Exodus 20 really mean you can't walk with your mat? Jesus instead, in verse 17, says, my father is working until now, and I am working. He's saying something more profound, which is it's not how we're applying the command of the Sabbath. Um, but remember, the Sabbath was given in Genesis 1, uh, or uh, the creation story is Genesis 1. Genesis 2, verses 1 to 3, is the seventh day God resting. And what does it mean that God rested from his works, that that's a, power for, uh, a pattern for us to follow? You have six days to work and one day to rest. Well, it was resting in the same way that a caregiver rests one day a week. You should take the first day of the week, go to church, rejoice, don't do all of those things that you normally have to do, don't do your laundry, don't do whatever it is. But if you're responsible for a six-month-old, or an ailing relative, um, you are still changing diapers several times a day. You can't claim your right to say, well, as a mom, I don't do work on the Lord's day. Uh, if your six-month-old is doing certain works several times a day, you will have to deal with it. Um, so here's God, not only the giver of life, but the sustainer of life. So when God sits back in delight, resting from his works, there's still something about this father, that's how Jesus refers to him, whose work is, is never not being done, 
but the gift of the Sabbath to people where he says, but you can stop. Um, Jesus comes now of somebody who was getting no rest seven days a week. His life was hard. And on the Sabbath day, he shows the new creation. He brings rest. He brings blessing. He brings gift. And the only thing people could see is he's not following the commands. And so Jesus says, my father is always working. <laughs> and now on this seventh day, my father is still working. But you're not rejoicing. You're getting angry at the one he sent. And so um, what we have here is not that Jesus is making himself equal with God. That's their charge. The fact is Jesus is equal with God, and they just didn't recognize it. What's remarkable is that he was making himself somewhat equal with us. That's the thing that they didn't see, because he came in flesh. He came as a person. And rather than recognizing the power of what he did, rather than hearing the truth and discerning the voice of Scripture in Jesus Christ, um, they hated him because he came in the likeness of humanity in order to bear our infirmities, in order to join the weak and the marginalized, in order uh, to be one who, though he would keep the rules, would be treated as a lawbreaker. And when he is crucified, I've referred to this several times and will do so as so long as we're in John's gospel, where Jesus says, my work is to do the will of the Father. It never ends. Uh, but it's on the sixth day that he's crucified, and his last words, as John records them for us, is, it is finished. And then he tells us, as the sun is near and going down, they need to take him down from the cross because the Sabbath was arriving. And so he spends the Sabbath resting in the grave, not the picture of rest that most of us want, humiliated, his body destroyed. Um, the nature of what he came to do was to do the work that we could not do. No matter how perfect we try to be, we always fall short. Um, God doesn't want you to be uh, flawless. God alone is flawless. God wants you to be healed. And so Jesus uh, is rejected because he showed the power of God. But his rejection shows in a deeper way how different God is, that the very people rejecting him are the ones that he's still offering grace to, healing a better way, that through his crucifixion, we can receive forgiveness. Through his uh, being destroyed in the body, our bodies can be raised up. That gospel promise means that the, the power of the invitation of Jesus' word, that he comes to us and says, get up and follow me, we don't have to ask the questions, am I ready for it? Am I worthy of it? We'll be able to do it perfectly. Um, we need to recognize that, that Jesus alone not only shows this power, but he shows this mercy and grace. Uh, what's hard for most of us is receiving this kind of grace because we rightly understand, but, but I'm meant to be, productive, I'm meant to be faithful, I'm meant to be obedient. The healing needs to happen deep within, where, where uh, you will not be able to sustain a life of striving unless our souls are made right. And what Jesus is doing is not saying, I want you to stay where you are and do nothing. He's saying, get up. Um, but in your following me, um, only if you're following me, understanding my grace and my mercy and being sustained by my power, there are days that you don't need to work but I'm always the one working. 
And so we use the language sometimes in our circles about trusting the finished work of Jesus. It's a bit of theological jargon, but if you really think about it, that Jesus fulfilled all things that we cannot in order that God can give us all things in him. There's something so refreshing, something that helps us stop our striving so that way we're not killing ourselves towards burnout, but we're able, able to actually find that should we choose to do more and more, if God trusts it to us, we're able to keep going. And this is hard. This week, uh, my oldest child was to drive in from Chicago with a group of college-age kids. And so that plan you knew from the beginning was not going to be an easy one to follow. So at first he said, well, I'll be arriving around six o'clock in New Jersey where he needed to be picked up. And I had a meeting. So Kathy, my wife, said, I'll go. And then at about noon, he said, the estimated time is 10 at night when I was not having a meeting. And I said, I will go. And then at 2 o'clock, he said, the car is broken down. I'll get back to you when we're arriving. So my wife and I saying, no, I'll go, no, I'll go, no, I'll go. I'm not going to justify why she went, but let's just say that she did go. Um, somewhere around 2 in the morning, needing to drive to New Jersey. That's the decision we made. Um, so the advantage I had, I could have slept, because that was who was going to get to sleep. And um, I did not go, but I did not sleep. What a waste. Here, my wife loved me enough to say, just stay here. And I just sat there, worried, troubled by the situation. So I was doing nothing, and my worry was not helping the situation. And it's not like I was texting affirming, affirming words to my tired wife, stay awake. Um, I just laid there not resting. And you know, you, you, you read these stories like in, in, in wartime when people take turns. Okay, you sleep and I'll, I'll be the person watching. <laughs> and I think I would really need to trust you to lay down and sleep in this dangerous situation. But the alternative is to not sleep. I, I've never been a soldier. I don't know how you do that. I guess maybe you're so exhausted that like it or not, you do it. Um, Jesus is here saying, look, the Father is always working. At some point, you can stop. But you need to trust him for that to happen. And what we find from most of us is there's something in us that is so uncomfortable ceasing that God can show us the, the beauty of his nature, <laughs> the power of what he will do, the hope of the gospel. And he'll say, "Take just take one day, and don't do anything else but rejoice in that. And there's something uncomfortable because if we stop doing what we're doing, then who are we? Um, are we just pathetic people that are taking handouts from God? None of us would say that. That's kind of how we feel. And unless I'm continuing doing the next great thing, I don't know how to exist in the world. And Jesus says the Father is working, not so that you'd keep the Sabbath perfectly, but but because there's this gift. He, he is doing a level of work that you will never have to do. So the thing is, can you receive it? Can you enjoy it? Can you be glad for it? Can you, can you take some time to say, actually, God cares for me. God did this because he loved me. Uh, no matter what the world thinks of me, I have belonging among his people. His word is powerful, and if I trust him and follow, I don't need to worry about my future. He will call me out of every situation. And so choice by choice, yeah, sometimes there are just hard things you need to do. Sometimes you need to work all night. Um, that happens. But if you're finding week by week, it's another week where the world depends on me. 
I can't stop working. Jesus wants to heal you. There's something in there that, that isn't coming from, from God and his teaching. It's coming from how the world defines success. And it's, um, it's, it's killing you. And Jesus is offering a better way. When he comes and says, do you want to be healed? He's announcing that you can be okay, just as you are. And he, by his grace and mercy, will accept you because he's already loved you. And if you follow him, you could walk through this world in an entirely different way, and he will teach you. He will show you. You, you will find yourself over time. The lessons aren't always easy, but, but finding that there is a rest that comes only in resting in Christ. Um, we need to practice this all the time. And so this week, just where are those moments where your, your anger is coming out, your frustration? Where do you feel like I need to keep going? And just stop and remember if the gospel is true, um, how does it define what you do next? Do you choose not to do it? Or do you do it knowing that it's okay if you don't do it perfectly? Knowing that the whole world does not depend on you? Um, it's so hard to let go of that, but it is even harder to hold on to it. And so Jesus is saying, take hold of me and, and I'll be with you. I'll, I'll lead you through this. Let's practice that this week. Let me pray. Our Father, we come today tired, some of us because we've done great things this week, some of us because we feel like we haven't done enough or haven't done enough to show that we're good enough. Lord, how hard it is to, to learn to have the mind of Christ, to remember that you are gracious and loving, that your standard is higher than the standard of the world, but so is your grace and mercy and compassion and power. And so, Lord, uh, help us not to be those who are so busy that we fail to recognize the grace that you offer to us. Help us instead to be those who find a rest that really restores our souls. And so, Lord, um, we're too stubborn to be able to do it ourselves this week. We pray, trusting that you are generous, that, that you will show some grace and favor. And so we join together praying for one another. Show it to us all so that we would be sustained and that uh, we would come alive and experience the healing that only you can offer to us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.